This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 8, Rice Patties and Math Tests. Section 1, the gateway to the industrial heartland of southern China runs up through the wide, verdant swath of the Pearl River Delta. The land is covered by a thick, smoggy haze. The freeways are crammed with tractor trailers. Power lines crisscross the landscape. Factories make cameras, computers, watches, umbrellas, and t-shirt ch stands cheek by jowl with densely packed blocks of apartment buildings in fields of banana and mango trees, sugarcane, papaya, and pineapple destined for the market export. Few landscapes in the world have changed so much in so short a time. A generation ago, the skies would have been clear and the road would have been a two-lane highway. And a generation before that, all that you would have seen were rice paddies. Two hours in, at the headwaters of the Pearl River, lies the city of Wanzhou. In past Wanzhou, remnants of old China are easier to find. The countryside becomes breathtakingly beautiful, dot rolling hills dotted with outcroppings of limestone rock against the backdrop of the Nanling Mountains. Here and there are the traditional khaki-colored mud-brick huts of the Chinese peasantry. In the small towns, there are open-air markets, chickens and geese in elaborate bamboo baskets, vegetables laid out in rows on the ground, slabs of pork on the table, tobacco being sold in big clumps. And everywhere there is rice, miles upon miles of it. In the winter season, the paddies are dry and dotted with the stubble of the previous year's crop. After the crops are planted in the early spring, as the humid winds begin to blow, they turn a magical green. And by the, by the time of the first harvest, as the grains emerge on the ends of the rice shoots, the land becomes an unending sea of yellow. Rice has been cultivated in China for thousands of years. It was from China that the techniques of rice cultivation spread throughout East Asia to Japan, Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan. Year in, year out, as far back as history is recorded, farmers from across Asia have engaged in the same relentless, intricate pattern of agriculture. Rice paddies are built, not opened up the way a wheat field is. You can't just clear the trees, underbrush, and stones and then plow. Rice fields are carved into mountainsides in an elaborate series of terraces, or painstakingly constructed from marshland and river plains. A rice paddy has to be irrigated, so a complex system of dikes has to be built around the field. Channels must be dug from the nearest water source, and gates built into the dikes so the water flow can be adjusted precisely to cover the right amount of the plant. The paddy itself, meanwhile, has to have a hard clay floor, otherwise the water will simply seep into the ground. But of course, seedlings cannot be planted in hard clay, so on top of the clay there has to be a thick, soft layer of mud. And the clay pan, as it's called, has to be carefully engineered so that, will drain, so that it will drain properly and also keep the plant submerged at the optimum level. Rice has to be fertilized repeatedly, which is another art. Traditionally, farmers use night soil, or human manure, which is a combination of burned compost, river mud, bean cake, and hemp. And they have to be careful, because too much fertilizer, or the wrong amount applied at the wrong time, could be as bad as too little of it. 
When the time came to plant, a Chinese farmer would have hundreds of different varieties of rice from which to choose, each one of which offered a slightly different trade-off, say between yield and how quickly it grew, or how well it did in times of drought, or how it fared in poor soil. A farmer might plant a dozen or more different varieties at one time, adjusting the mix from season to season in order to manage the risk of a crop failure. He or she, or more accurately, the entire family, since rice agriculture was a family affair, would plant the seed in a specially prepared seed bed. After a few weeks, the seedlings would be transplanted into the field in carefully spaced rows six inches apart and then painstakingly nurtured. Weeding was done by hand, diligently and unceasingly, because the seedlings could easily be choked by other plant life. Sometimes each rice shoot would be individually groomed with a bamboo comb to clear away insects. All the while, farmers had to check and recheck water levels and make sure the water didn't get too hot in the summer sun. And when the rice ripened, farmers gathered all of their friends and relatives, and in one coordinated burst, they harvested it as quickly as possible so they could get a second crop in before the winter dry season began. Breakfast in South China, at least for those who could afford it, was congee, white rice porridge with lettuce and dace paste and bamboo shoots. Lunch was more congee. Dinner was rice with toppings. Rice was what you sold at the market to buy the other necessities of life. It was how wealth and status were measured. It dictated almost every working moment of every day. Rice is life, says the anthropologist Goncalo Santos, who has studied a traditional South Chinese village. Quote, without rice, you don't survive. If you want to be anyone in this part of China, you would have to have rice. It made the world go around. End quote. Section 2. Take a look at the following list of numbers. 4853976. Read them out loud. Now look away and spend 20 seconds memorizing that sequence before saying them out loud again. If you speak English, you have about a 50% chance of remembering that sequence perfectly. If you're Chinese, though, you're almost certain to get it right every time. Why is that? Because as human beings, we store digits in a memory loop that runs for about two seconds. We can easily memorize whatever we say or read within that two-second span. And Chinese speakers get that list of numbers, 4853976, right almost every time. Because, unlike English, their language allows them to fit all those seven numbers into two seconds. That example comes from Stanislaus Dehaney's book, The Number Sense. As Dehaney explains, quote, Chinese number words are remarkably brief. Most of them can be uttered in less than one quarter of a second. For instance, four is she, and seven is she. Their English equivalents, four, seven, are longer, Pronouncing them takes about a third of a second. The memory gap between English and Chinese, apparently, is entirely due to this difference in length. In languages as diverse as Welsh, Arabic, Chinese, English, and Hebrew, there is a reproducible correlation between the time required to pronounce numbers in a given language and the memory span of its speakers. In this domain, the prize for efficacy goes to the Cantonese dialect of Chinese, whose brevity grants residents of Hong Kong a rocketing memory span of about 10 digits. End quote. It turns out that there is also a big difference in how number naming systems in Western and Asian culture languages are constructed. In English, we say 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 
and so on. So one might expect that we would also say one teen, two teen, three teen, and five teen, but we don't. We use a different form, 11, 12, 13, and 15. Similarly, we have 40 and 60, which sounds like the words they are related to, four and six. But we also say 50 and 30 and 20, which sort of sound like five and three and two, but not really. For that matter, for numbers above 20, we put the decade first and the unit number second, like 22, 23. Whereas for the teens, we do it the other way around, 14, 17, 18. The number system in English is highly irregular. Not so in China, Japan, and Korea. They have a logical counting system. 11 is 10, 1. 12 is 10, 2. 24 is 2, 10, 4, and so on. That difference means that Asian children learn to count much faster than American children. Four-year-old Chinese children can count, on average, to 40. American children at that age can count only to 15, and most don't reach 40 until they're five. By the, age, by the age of five, in other words, American children are already a year behind their Asian counterparts in the most fundamental of math skills. The regularity of their number system also means that Asian children can perform basic functions, such as addition, far more easily. Ask an, an English-speaking seven-year-old to add 37 plus 22 in her head, and she has to convert the words to numbers, 37 plus 22. Only then can they do the math. 2 plus 7 is 9, and 30 and 20 is 50, which makes 59. Ask an Asian child to add 3 tens 7 and 2 tens 2, and the necessary equation is right there, embedded into the sentence. No number translation is necessary. It's 5 tens 9. Quote, the Asian system is transparent, says Karen Fuson, a Northwestern University psychologist who has closely studied Asian-Western differences. She says, I think that it makes the whole attitude toward math different. Instead of being a rote learning thing, there's a pattern I can figure out. There's an expectation that I can do this. There's an expectation that it is sensible. For fractions, we say three-fifths. The Chinese is literally, out of five parts, take three. That's telling you conceptually what a fraction is. It's differentiating the denominator and the numerator, end quote. The much-storied disenchantment disenchantment with mathematics among Western children starts in the third and fourth grades, and Fuson argues that perhaps a part of that disenchantment is due to the fact that math doesn't seem to make sense. Its linguistic structure is clumsy. Its basic rules seem arbitrary and complicated. Asian children, by contrast, don't feel nearly that same bafflement. They can hold more numbers in their heads and do calculations faster. And the way fractions are expressed in their languages corresponds exactly to the way a fraction actually is. And maybe that makes, makes them a little more likely to enjoy math. And maybe because they enjoy math a little more, they try a little harder and take more math classes and are more willing to do their homework and on and on in a kind of virtuous cycle. When it comes to math, in other words, Asians have a built-in advantage. It, but it's an unusual kind of advantage. For years, students from China, South Korea, and Japan, and the children of recent immigrants who are from those countries, have substantially outperformed their Western counterparts at mathematics, and the typical assumption is that it has something to do with a kind of innate Asian proclivity for math. 
the physio- the psychologist Richard Lind has even go so far as to propose an elaborate evolutionary theory involving the Himalayas. Really, cold weather, pre-modern hunting practices, brain size, and specialized vowels to explain why Asians have higher IQs. That's how we think about math. We assume that being good at things like calculus and algebra is a simple function of how smart someone is. But the differences between the number systems in the East and the West suggest something very different, that being good at math may also be rooted in a group's culture. In the case of the Koreans, one kind of deeply rooted legacy stood in the way of the very modern task of flying an airplane. Here we have another kind of legacy, one that turns out to be perfectly suited for 21st century tasks. Cultural legacies matter, and once we've seen the surprising effects of such things at power distance and numbers that can be said in a quarter as opposed to a third of a second, it's not hard to wonder how many other cultural legacies have an impact on our 21st century intellectual tasks. What if coming from a culture shaped by the demands of growing rice also makes you better at math? Could the rice patty make a difference in the classroom? Section 3. The most striking fact about a rice paddy, which can never quite be grasped until you actually stand in the middle of one, is its size. It's tiny. The typical rice paddy is about as big as a hotel room. A typical Asian rice farm might be composed of two or three paddies. A village in China of 1,500 people might support itself entirely with 450 acres of land, which in the American Midwest would be the size of a typical family farm. At that scale, with families of five and six people living off a farm the size of two hotel rooms, agriculture changes dramatically. Historically, Western agriculture is mechanically oriented. In the West, if a farmer wanted to become more efficient or increase his yield, he introduced more and more sophisticated equipment, which allowed him to replace human labor with mechanical labor, a threshing machine, a hay baler, a combine harvester, or a tractor. He cleared another field and increased his acreage because now his machinery allowed him to work more land with the same amount of effort. But in Japan and China, farmers didn't have the money to buy equipment, and in any case, there certainly wasn't any extra land that could easily be converted into new fields. So rice farmers manage, became, rice farmers improved their yields by becoming smarter, by being better managers of their own time, and by making better choices. As the anthropologist Francesca Bray puts it, rice agriculture is skill-oriented. If you're willing to weed a bit more diligently and become more adept at fertilizing and spend a little bit more time monitoring water levels and do a better job of keeping the clay pan absolutely level and making use of every square inch of your rice paddy, you will harvest a bigger crop. Throughout history, not surprisingly, the people who grow rice have always worked harder than almost any other kind of farmer. The last statement may seem a little odd, because most of us have a sense that everyone in the pre-modern world worked really hard, but that simply isn't true. All of us, for example, are descended at some point from hunter-gatherers, and many hunter-gatherers, by all accounts, had a pretty leisurely life. The Kung Bushmen of the Kalahari Desert in Botswana, who were one of the last remaining practitioners of that way of life, subsist on a rich assortment of fruits, berries, roots, and nuts, in particular, the mongongo nut, an incredibly plentiful and protein-rich source of food that lies thick in the ground. They don't grow anything, and it is growing things, pre- pre- preparing, planting, weeding, harvesting, storing, that takes time. Nor do they raise any animals. Occasionally, 
the male kung hunt, but chiefly for sport. All told, kung men and women work no more than 12, to, about 12 to 19 hours a week, and the balance of time spent dancing, entertaining, and visiting with family and friends. That's at most 1,000 of hours of work a, a year. When a bushman was asked once why his people hadn't taken to agriculture, he looked puzzled and said, why should we plant when there are so many mongongo nuts in the world? Consider the life of a peasant in 18th century Europe. Men and women in those, in those days probably worked from dawn to noon 200 days a year, which works out to about 1,200 hours of work annually. During harvest or spring planting, the day might be longer. In the winter, much less. In The Discovery of France, the historian Graham Robb argues that peasant life in a country like France, even well into the 19th century, was essentially brief periods of work followed by long episodes of idleness. Quote, 99% of all human activity described in this and other accounts of French country life took place between late spring and early autumn. End quote. In the Pyrenees and the Alps, entire villages would essentially hibernate from the time of the first snow in November until March or April. In more temperate regions of France, where temperatures in the winter rarely fell below freezing, the same pattern held. Rob continues, quote, The fields of Flanders were deserted for much of the year. An official report on the Neve in 1844 described the strange mutation of the Burgundian day laborer once the harvest was in and the vine stalks had been burned, saying, After making the necessary repairs to their tools, these vigorous men will now spend their days in bed, packing their bodies tightly together in order to stay warm and eat less food. They weaken themselves deliberately. Human hibernation was a physical and economic necessity. Lowering the metabolic rate prevented hunger from exhausting supplies. People trudged and dawdled, even in summer. After the revolution, in Alsace and Pas-de-Calais, officials complained that wine growers and independent farmers, instead of undertaking a peaceful and sedentary industry in the quieter season, abandoned themselves to dumb idleness. End quote. If you were a peasant farmer in southern China, by contrast, you didn't sleep through the winter. In the short break marked by the dry seasons, from November through February, you busied yourself with side tasks. You made bamboo baskets or hats and sold them in the market. You repaired the dikes in your rice paddy and rebuilt your mud hut. You sent one of your sons to work in a nearby village for a relative. You made tofu and dried bean curd and caught snakes. They were the delicacy. And trapped insects. By the time Lap Chun came, or the turning of the spring, you were back in the fields at dawn. Working in a rice field is 10 to 20 times more labor-intensive than working on an equivalent-sized corn or wheat field. Some estimates put the annual workload of a, of a wet rice farmer in Asia at 3,000 hours a year. Section 4. Think, for a moment, about what the life of a rice farmer in the early Pearl Delta must have been like. 3,000 hours a year is a staggering amount of time to spend working, particularly if many of those hours involve being bent over in the hot sun, planting and weeding a rice paddy. What redeemed the life, the life of a rice farmer, however, was the nature of that work. It was a lot like the garment work done by the Jewish immigrants to New York. It was meaningful. First of all, there is a clear relationship in rice farming between effort and reward. The harder you work a rice field, the more it yields. Second, it's complex work. 
the rice farmer isn't simply planting in the spring and harvesting in the fall. He or she effectively runs a small business, juggling a family workforce, hedging uncertainty through seed selection, building and managing a sophisticated irrigation system, and coordinating the complicated process of harvesting the first crop while simultaneously preparing a second crop. Most of all, it's autonomous. The peasants of Europe worked essentially as low-paid slaves of an aristocratic landlord with little control over their own destinies. But China and Japan never developed that kind of oppressive feudal system because feudalism simply can't work in a rice economy. Growing rice is too complicated and intricate for a system that requires farmers to be coerced and bullied into going out into the fields each morning. By the 14th and 15th centuries, landlords in central and southern China had an almost completely hands-off relationship with their tenants. They would collect a fixed rent and let farmers go about their business. The thing about wet rice farming is, not only do you need phenomenal amounts of labor, but it's very exacting, from the historian Kenneth Pomerantz. Quote, you have to care. It really matters that the field is perfectly leveled before you flood it. Getting it close to level but not quite right makes a big difference in terms of your yield. It really matters that the water is in the fields for just the right amount of time. There's a big difference between lining up the seedlings at exactly the right distance and doing it sloppily. It's not like you put the corn in the ground in mid-March and as long as rain comes by at the end of the month, you're okay. You are controlling all the inputs in a very direct way. And when you have something that requires that much care, the overlord has to have a system that actually gives the actual laborer some, cent some set of incentives, where, if the harvest comes out well, the farmer gets a bigger share. That's why you get fixed rents, where the landlord says, I get 20 bushels, regardless of the harvest, and if it's really good, then you get the extra. It's a crop that doesn't do very well with something like slavery or wage labor. It would just be too easy to leave the gate that controls the irrigation water open a few seconds too long, and there goes your field. The historian David Arkush once compared Russian and Chinese peasant proverbs, and the differences are striking. Typical Russian proverb says, If God does not bring it, the earth will not give it. That's the kind of fatalism and pessimism typical of a repressive feudal system, where peasants have no reason to believe in the efficacy of their own work. On the other hand, Arkush writes that Chinese proverbs are striking in their belief that hard work, shrewd planning, and self-reliance or cooperation with a small group will in time bring recompense. Here were some of the things that penniless peasants would say to one another as they worked 3,000 hours a year in the baking heat and humidity of Chinese rice paddies, which, by the way, are filled with leeches. Quote, no food without blood and sweat. Farmers are busy. Farmers are busy. If farmers weren't busy, where would grain to get through the winter come from? In winter, the lazy man freezes to death. Don't depend on heaven for food, but on your own, two hands carrying the load. Useless to ask about the crops. It all depends on hard work and fertilizer. If a man works hard, the land will not be lazy. End quote. The most telling of all is this last one. No one who can rise before dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. Wow. Rise before dawn? 360 days a year? For the Kung, leisurely gathering mongongo nuts, or the French peasant sleeping away the winter, or anyone else living something other than the world of rice cultivation, that proverb, proverb would be unthinkable. 
This is not, of course, an unfamiliar observation about West Asian culture. Go to any Western college campus and you'll find that Asian students have a reputation for being in the library long after everyone else has left. Sometimes people of Asian background get offended when their culture is described this way because they think that the stereotype is being used as a form of disparagement. But a belief in work ought to be a thing of beauty. Virtually every success story we've seen in this book so far involves someone or some group working harder than their peers. Bill Gates was addicted to his computer as a child. So was Bill Joy. The Beatles put in thousands of hours perfecting in Hamburg. Joe Flom ground away for years perfecting the art of takeovers before he got his chance. Working really hard is what successful people do, and the genius of the culture formed is the, in the rice paddies is that hard work gave, in those gave those in the fields a way to find meaning in the midst of great uncertainty and poverty. That lesson has served Asians well in many endeavors, but rarely so perfectly as in the case of mathematics. Section 5. A few years ago, Alan Schoenfeld, a math professor at Berkeley, made a video of a woman named Renee as she was trying to solve a math problem. Renee was in her mid-twenties with long black hair and round silver glasses. In the tape, she pl she's playing with a software program designed to teach algebra. On the screen are an X and Y axis. The program asks the user to punch in a set of coordinates and then draws the line from those coordinates on the screen. For example, when she typed in 5 on the y-axis and 5 on the x-axis, the computer did this. At this point, I'm sure some vague memory of your high school, of your middle school algebra is coming back to you. But rest assured, you don't need to remember any of it to understand the significance of Renee's example. In fact, as you listen to Renee talking in the next few paragraphs, focus not on what she's saying, but rather on how she's talking and why she's talking the way she is. The point of the computer program, which Schoenfeld created, was to teach students how to calculate the, the slope of a line. Slope, as I'm sure you remember, or more accurately, I'll bet you didn't remember, <laughs> is rise over run. The slope of the line in our example is 1, since the rise is 5 and the run is 5. So there is Renee. She's sitting at the keyboard and she's trying to figure out what numbers to enter in order to get the computer to draw a line that is absolutely vertical that is directly superimposed over the y-axis. Now, those of you who remember your high school math will know what, that this is, in fact, impossible. A vertical line has an undefined slope. Its rise is infinite, any number on the y-axis starting at zero and going on forever. Its run on the x-axis, meanwhile, is zero. But infinity divided by zero is not a number. But Renee doesn't realize that what she's trying to do can't be done. She is, rather, in the grip of what Schoenfeld calls a glorious misconception, and the reason Schoenfeld likes to show this particular tape is that it is a perfect demonstration of how this misconception came to be resolved. Renee was a nurse. She wasn't someone who had been particularly interested in mathematics in the past, but she had somehow gotten hold of the software and was hooked. Now, what I want to do is make a straight line with this formula, parallel to the x-axis, she begins, Schoenfeld is sitting next to her. She looks over at him anxiously. It's been five years since I did any of this. She starts to fiddle with the program, typing in different numbers, saying, Now if I change the slope that way, minus one, now what I mean to do is make the line go straight. As she types in the numbers, the line on the screen changes. Oops, that's not going to do it. 
and she looks puzzled. Schoenfeld asks, what are you trying to do? She replies, what I'm trying to do is make a straight line parallel to the, to the y-axis. What do I need to do here? I think what I need to do is change this little bit. She points at the number, at the place where the number for the y-axis is. That was something I discovered, that when you go from one to two, there was a rather big change. But now if you get way up there, you have to keep changing. This is Renee's glorious misconception. She's noticed that the higher she makes the y-axis coordinate, the steeper the line gets. So she thinks that the key to making a vertical line is just making the y-axis coordinate large enough. I guess 12 or even 13 could do it, she says, maybe even as much as 15. She frowns. She and Schoenfeld go back and forth. She asks him questions, and he prods her gently in the right direction. She keeps trying and trying, one approach after another. At one point, she types in 20, and the line gets steeper. She types in 40, the line gets steeper still. She says, I don't see that there was a relationship where, there, but as to why, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. What if I do 80? What if 40 gets me halfway? Then 80 should get me all the way to the y-axis. So let's just see what happens. She types in 80. The line is steeper, but it's still not going ver totally vertical. Oh, it's infinity, isn't it? It's never going to get there. Renee is close, but then she reverts to her original misconception. So what do I need? 100? Every time you double the number, you get halfway to the y-axis, but it never gets there. She types in 100. It's closer, but not quite there yet. She starts to think out loud. It's obvious she's on the verge of figuring something out. Well, I knew this, though, but I knew that. For each one up, it goes that many over. But I'm still confused as to why. She pauses, squinting at the screen. I'm getting confused. It's a tenth of the way to the one, but I don't want it to be. And then she sees it. Oh, it's any number up and zero numbers over. It's any number divided by zero. Her face lights up. A vertical line is anything divided by zero, and that's an undefined number. Oh, okay, now I see. The slope of a vertical line is undefined. Ah, that means something now. I won't forget it. Section six. Over the course of his career, Schoenfeld has videotaped countless students as they worked on math problems. But the Rene tape is one of his favorites because of how beautifully it illustrates what he considers to be the secret to learning mathematics. 22 minutes pass from the moment Rene begins playing with the computer program to the moment she says, ah, that means something now. That's a long time. This is eighth grade mathematics, Schoenfeld said. If I put the average eighth grader in the same position as Rene, I'm guessing that after the first few attempts, they would have said, I don't get it. I need you to explain it. Schoenfeld once asked a group of high school students how long they would work on a homework problem before they concluded that it was too hard for them to solve. Their answers, their answers ranged from 30 seconds to five minutes, with an average around two. But Renee persists. She experiments. She goes back over the same issues time and time again. She thinks out loud. She keeps going and going and simply won't give up. She knows on some vague level that there is something wrong with her theory about how to draw a vertical line and she won't stop until she's absolutely sure she has it right. Renee wasn't a math natural. Abstract concepts like slope and undefined clearly didn't come easily to her. But Schoenfeld could not have found her more impressive. He says, there's a will to make sense that drives what she does. She wouldn't accept a superficial, yeah, you're right, and walk away. That's not who she was. 
and that's really unusual. He rewound the tape and pointed to a moment when Rene acted with genuine surprise to something on the screen. Look, he says, she does a double take. Many students would just let that fly by. Instead, she thought, that doesn't jive with whatever I'm thinking. I don't get it. That's important, and I want an explanation. And when she finally gets an explanation, she says, yeah, that fits. At Berkeley, Schoenfeld teaches a course on problem solving, the entire point of which, he says, is to get his students to unlearn the mathematical habits they picked up on the way to university. I pick a problem that I don't know how to solve, he says. I tell my students, you're going to have a two-week take-home exam. I know your habits. You're going to do nothing for the first week and start it next week, and I want to warn you now. If you only spend one week on this, you're not going to solve it. If, on the other hand, you start working the day I give you the midterm, you will be frustrated. You'll come to me and say, it's impossible. I will tell you, keep working, and by week two, you will have found that you make significant progress. We sometimes think of being good at mathematics as an innate ability. You either have it or you don't. But to Schoenfeld, it's not so much ability such as attitude. You master mathematics if you are willing to try. That's what Schoenfeld attempts to teach his students. Success is a function of persistence and doggedness in the willingness to work hard for 22 minutes to make sense of something that most people would give up on after 30 seconds. Put a bunch of Renés in a classroom and give them the space and time to explore mathematics for themselves and you could go a long way. Or imagine a country where Renés' doggedness is not the exception but a cultural trait embedded as deeply as the culture of honor in the Cumberland Plateau. Now that would be a country good at math. Section 7. Every four years, an international group of educators, administrators, administers a comprehensive mathematics and science test to elementary and junior high students around the world. It's the TIMSS, or TIMS, the same test you read about earlier in the discussion of differences between fourth graders born near the beginning of a school cutoff date and those born near the end of that date. And the point of the TIMS is to compare the educational achievement of one country with another's. When students sit down to take the TIMS exam, they also have to fill out a questionnaire. It asks them all kinds of things, such as what their parents' level of education is and what their views about math are and what their friends are like. It's not a trivial exercise. It's about 120 questions long, and in fact, it's so tedious and demanding that many students leave as many as 10 or 20 questions blank. Now, here's the interesting part. As it turns out, the average number of items answered on that questionnaire varies from country to country. It is possible, in fact, to rank all the participating countries according to how many items or students answer on the questionnaire. Now, what do you think happens if you compare the questionnaire rankings with the math rankings on the TIMS? They are exactly the same. In other words, countries whose students are willing to concentrate and sit still long enough and focus on answering every single question in an endless questionnaire are the same countries whose, whose students do the best job of solving math problems. The person who discovered this fact is an educational researcher at the University of Pennsylvania named Erling Bow, and he stumbled across it by accident. It came out of the blue, he says. Bo hasn't even been able to publish his findings in a scientific journal, he says, because it's a little bit too weird. Remember, he's not saying that the ability to finish the questionnaire and the ability to excel on math tests are related. He's saying that they are the same. If you compare the two rankings, they are identical. Think about it this way. 
Imagine that every year there was a math Olympics in some fabulous city in the world. And every country in the world sent its own team of 1,008 grader, eighth graders. Bo's point is that we could predict precisely the order in which every country would finish in the math Olympics without, answering a, without asking a single math problem. All we would have to do is give them some task measuring how hard they were willing to work. In fact, we wouldn't even have to give them a task. We should be able to predict which countries are best at math simply by looking at which national cultures place the highest emphasis on effort and hard work. So, which places are at the top of the list? The answer wouldn't surprise you. Singapore, South Korea, China and Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Japan. What those five have in common, of course, is that they are all cultures shaped by the tradition of wet rice agriculture and meaningful work. They are the kinds of places where, for hundreds of years, penniless peasants slaving away in the rice paddies 3,000 hours a year said things to one another like, no one who can rise before dawn 360 days a year fails to make his family rich. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.